Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. I'm Katie Reif. Today we're going to be talking about Frozen 2, the sequel to the Disney Smash, and also A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. Welcome to a new season of Film Club. So Alex, to kick off our new season of Film Club, we're going to talk about a movie that I think a lot of parents in particular are going to see this holiday season, whether they really want to or not. That is Frozen 2, the sequel to the record-setting, gigantic Disney blockbuster. I don't have any children, you know, real close to me in my life, yet I still have heard all of the songs from this film. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's how big of a hit the first Frozen was. It's now the biggest animated movie of all time. Mm -hmm. I don't have kids either, but I think both of us grew up in the the sort of age of the Disney Renaissance. Absolutely. You know, films like The Little Mermaid mm -hmm. and Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King. And the original Frozen, in some respects, felt like a throwback to those films that was also sort of lightly progressive in some ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt like it got a lot of attention for breaking in very small and I would say somewhat superficial ways from the older politics of Disney films. Sure, yeah. It uses the sort of like princess in the magical kingdom conceit of a fairy tale, but in it being more about the relationship between the sisters right. than about a handsome prince. You know, aside from the thing that I think is pretty well established in American film at this point, which is that the princess doesn't need to be saved. Even by the time the first Frozen came out, that was pretty well established. So I think that the most progressive part of the original is emphasizing the relationship of the sisters over romantic relationships. For sure. So I, I sort of felt like the original was lightly progressive in some ways, mm -hmm. but it was also traditionalist in other ways, sure. which made it a perfect film for sort of millennial parents as well, which I think might account for one of the reasons why it was such a big hit. The sequel, I think, in, in many ways kind of replicates a lot of the things that people loved about the original without quite recapturing the magic of that film. Yeah, and one way to me that the parallel seemed really obvious was in the structure of it musically. Each song serves a specific purpose in furthering the plot. You know, like you have your inciting incident song, and then your all is lost song, and then your the resolution song. That, that was very similar. Obviously, Let It Go was the huge thing from the original Frozen. And in this film, based on radio ads and marketing, I think they're going to try to push Into the Unknown as the big musical number from Frozen 2, which makes sense to me because I think it's the most memorable song in the movie. Oh, it's easily the most memorable. I think it's yeah. the best song in the movie. And one of the only that I think has any chance of enduring the way that that song or even something like Do You Want to Build a Snowman from the original mm -hmm. endured. Well, I'll be really interested to see how this plays out because Into the Unknown, uh, Dina Menzel sings the songs as Elsa again. Her vocal range in that song is very difficult. So it's a tough one to karaoke. So I'll be interested <laughs> to see how that affects its enduring qualities because people love to sing Let It Go, so totally, that yeah. one's going to be harder to pull off. It's, there's going to be a lot of failed attempts at this one, I yeah, feel totally. like, at karaoke bars. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> the, the story, it sends them on another adventure mm -hmm. this time. I think that this one is built so much on the template of the original that a lot of it is about filling in things that the original didn't give us. Sure. Like, if you care a lot about how Elsa got her magic powers, good or news. Or why she gonna, has magic powers. Or why she yeah. has magic powers. Other sort of unexplained uh, aspects of the backstory in the original, this will fill it in. I don't find that necessarily to be the most satisfying approach to a sequel. Mm -hmm. I will also admit that I may not be the target audience for this film. <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that there are kids who might be very excited to see how Elsa became it's sort of, a superhero. I mean, it's of a piece with the Frozen movie's sort of overall project of lightly deconstructing 
busting the myth of fairy tales mm -hmm. because it's always a given that a character has powers and they don't really explain why. So I think that's of a piece with its overall sort of project. And also, I loved how you said lightly progressive to describe the first film yeah. earlier because that's how I felt about this one. Because on the one hand, I was a little bit pleasantly surprised to find that a major plot point in this film revolves around Elsa and Anna's grandfather screwing over the film's Native American proxy in sort of a colonialist gesture. Yeah. And their big conflict in the film is they have to fix the sins of the past, which is a really interesting sort of point of view for kids today who have a lot of challenges they're facing, like the environmental crisis, you know, that that's all about kids fixing the sins of their parents and their grandparents. Totally. So I think that's a very interesting plot point to put into a mainstream kids movie. But at the same time, it absolves the characters of any sort of racist or greedy sins. Yeah, you know? well, I think beyond that, it's a film about consequences that doesn't actually ask its characters to face any real consequences. Right. And maybe that's to be expected from something that's aimed at children and families. The last thing you want to do over Thanksgiving, families going out to see Frozen 2, is bum out the whole family, <laughs> sure. you know? Although, you know what? Like, Thanksgiving, you know, maybe it would be a good opportunity for parents to talk to their kids about what happened in the history of America with yeah. real Native Americans, yes. you know? It would be a sort of an opportune conversation starter. Mm -hmm if the movie were that interested in that. Exactly. I think ultimately I thought this was very well animated mm -hmm. as well. I think it's nice to see the amount of effort and creativity that went into the creation of this world again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's maybe a high water mark for Disney in that respect. I thought the animation was wonderful. We both see a lot of kind of cheapy kids movies as part of our job. Watching this movie really hammered home to me how bad the animation is in most <laughs> kids animated movies, how yeah. lazy it is. It's just so much more textured yeah. than most animation that you see. Like fur looks like fur and water looks like water. And th these are just details that aren't covered in most of these films. I thought it was very interesting they had a whole lighting unit mm -hmm. to make the directional lighting correct and things like that. I just really appreciate it. I thought there were some really nice imaginative touches. Like there's a sequence towards the end where they go to sort of the mythical cave where all the secrets of their kingdom are kept. And there's some uh, cool imaginative animation in there, you know, incorporating like snowflake crystal designs into the animation that I thought was kind of cool. What I couldn't help think of though, honestly, is is that there, and, and this is true I think of a lot of animated films and a lot of contemporary animated films, is that there's just this enormous, enormous chasm between the effort level of the people who do the animation for these movies mm -hmm. and the thought that went into the script and went yeah. into the story. And because I ultimately- and the what jokes. I, yeah, and into the jokes. I mean, there's just this enormous, I, 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 I always I find myself thinking about this room of animators toiling away for years and writers who spent, I mean, I'm sure the writers spent a long time on it too, but it often doesn't feel that way, honestly. This feels like something that, yeah. was, that was written by committee and that has been specifically designed to echo the pleasures of the last film without, in my opinion, enhancing them. Yeah, I mean, I would counter that I think that it was probably more focused grouped to death as opposed to lazy. It was so overdone that it ended up looking generic yeah. <laughs> rather than just slapped together quickly with something generic. Excuse me, I climbed the North Mountain, survived a frozen heart, and saved you from my ex-boyfriend, and I did it all without powers. So, you know, I'm coming. <laughs> me too. I'll drive. I'll bring the snacks! Let's pivot to the second movie we're going to talk yeah. about this week, and I think it could actually siphon... Who are we kidding? It's not going to siphon any business off Frozen 2, but if you're a parent going to the theater with your kids yeah. and you can't get into Frozen 2 because it's all sold out, yeah. there is a 
another movie in theaters about a beloved children's entertainer. I would say at this point, kind of a national hero, Mr. Rogers. Yes. Uh, and he is Definitely played by Tom he's Hanks. Been, he's been canonized on the internet for sure. He certainly has, yeah. yeah. So you were a big fan of director Muriel Heller's last movie, mm -hmm. Can You Ever Forgive Me? Yes, I thought it was a wonderful vehicle for Melissa McCarthy, who's a talent who I don't think that her potential had really been tapped in that way before that, and the rapport between her and Richard E. Grant in the movie. I just thought that movie was wonderful. This one, I did not like nearly as much. Okay. I think part of that has to do with expectations. I think that the distributor is kind of setting this movie up for a negative reaction by billing it as a Mr. Rogers biopic, which it is definitely not. Is that such a bad thing, though? I mean, do we want a biopic about all of Mr. Rogers' life? I mean, last year well, we got... Well, yeah, it'd be kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think he... I mean, I don't think he lived a terribly exciting life. I mean, he was in show business, and he was not a sniper. The movie does acknowledge that bit yes, of that myth about him. He did see the KKK, though. That's real. Uh, is that in the movie as well? No, it's not in the movie, but that's yeah. a real fact about Mr. Rogers. Rogers, like you probably could film a, you know, yeah, you could a biopic work into around a biopic, that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of grateful watching it that it didn't turn into a biopic. Interesting, um, okay. For one thing, because we have the documentary from last year about Mr. Rogers that was mm -hmm. very well received. That was a pretty good documentary. It's pretty good. You it's know, pretty good. It covers the scope. Yeah. Totally. I um, it. And it covers the scope of his career. And I don't know if we need a dramatization of those events. Mm -hmm. I think this takes, I don't know about a smarter approach, because I think it, it also takes an approach that feels a little cliche to me as well, which is we're going to look at Mr. Rogers. We're going to look at the legacy of Mr. Rogers and his value as, as a public entertainer through the lens of his relationship to a grumpy journalist. Right. You know, <laughs> the, the film is based on this Esquire article yes. from the late 90s. This writer went, uh, was sort of assigned to go profile him for an issue. It's played by Matthew Reese from The Americans. Mm -hmm. And he goes and the film becomes about this relationship that he develops between Mr. Rogers, but also about his relationship to his father. Yes. He's been estranged with. Specifically, it's how Mr. Rogers helps him reconcile with his father. Which I think is a slightly hackneyed dramatic device. Well, particularly, like, I don't want a gritty yeah. Mr. Rogers biopic, mm -hmm. but the way that Mr. Rogers is depicted in this movie is very much in line with his popular canonization. 100%. But I will say that it, it, it does get occasionally into how frustrating it would be to try to interview somebody like Mr. Rogers. Sure, yes. You know? He There's, keeps turning the questions back on it. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and I think the movie suggests at a certain point that that's, a, that's its own form of evasion. And one of the smarter things I think about the film is this suggestion that Mr. Rogers was somebody who used kindness as a front and as a way to occasionally deflect. The movie does play into the cult of Mr. Rogers as this figure of pure it's like a kindness. magical person. You He's know. a fairy godfather character in this movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Kind he of like another film that cast Tom Hanks as a real person, Saving Mr. Banks. Yeah. And in that movie he's playing uh, Walt Disney and I think his version of Disney too is print the legend, you know. Right. Well, Disney was a more complex person than Indeed. Mr. Rogers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing about Mr. Rogers yeah. is I think that he actually lives up to his reputation. Mm -hmm. What did you think about Hanks in the role? I thought Hanks's performance was a little mannered, actually, mm, okay. in a way that, you know, was definitely heartfelt, but didn't fully translate to me as like a real person. Although that may be a side effect of what you were talking about, the sort of subtextual element of the film where Mr. Rogers would use his public persona as a way of avoiding actually talking about himself. There is a certain guardedness in the way that he plays the role in that like he has all of the surface mannerisms you would expect from Mr. Rogers, but you definitely feel like he's concealing something. It feels very deliberate to me, to yeah. be honest. I quite like Hanks in the role, mm -hmm. and I think one reason I like him is that Heller is not attempting to coax 
evokes a real impression out of Tom Hanks. Right. Tom Hanks is not a chameleon as an actor. He's uh, similarly beloved like Mr. Rogers, so it was yes. smart casting to put him in the role because I think people respond to Tom Hanks in a similar way they respond to Mr. Rogers. Yes, I think that's 100% what the movie is doing, mm -hmm. is it's using Hanks's persona, mm -hmm. Hanks's kind of wholesome Americanness, mm -hmm. as a proxy for Mr. Rogers. It's saying there's no way we're gonna get somebody who can actually convey the depth of feeling and who can recapture the audience's relationship to Fred Rogers, so we need somebody who can kind of fill in for him. Who has his own relationship with the audience. Yes, exactly. Know? So the audience is bringing their own connection to Hanks and it's sort of filling in for the relationship they have with Mr. Rogers, which I think is really savvy. Well, one thing I did really like about this movie, I wasn't expecting it to have these like lightly met, heavily meta at mm -hmm. some point sequences, because how much screen time does Hanks have in this movie? Maybe a half hour? 20 minutes maybe, 20 minutes? Yeah. yeah. He doesn't have a lot. Yeah, not a lot of screen time, but they inject a little bit of that Mr. Rogers quality into other parts of the film by having miniatures of the different cities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, using those for the establishing mm -hmm. shots, you know? So we're seeing New York, but we're seeing a miniature version of New like York. Like a Mr. Yeah. Rogers style miniature of New mm -hmm. York. The implication is that this this is like a sketch on, yeah, Mr. Totally. on a Mr. Yep. Rogers episode. We're learning a lesson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Bit. I'm kind of mixed on that device. Mm. I mean, I, I found it, I, I thought it was inter it was a weird touch. For, it is weird, it's yeah. the one I was expecting. It's a weird touch, but yeah. I also think it's occasionally kind of hokey too. There's a dream sequence at one point in the film that sticks Matthew Reese's character into the fantasy, mm -hmm. the, the puppet fantasy land within mm -hmm. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which I found a little hokey. Ultimately though, I think this tries to get at some of Mr. Rogers' appeal and some of his philosophy as a public performer, and I appreciated that about it. I will give it credit for trying to take a different approach than straight biopic, because I think you could easily have made a straight tearjerker biopic that people would have really loved. When I'm saying that I think that they're setting it up for a negative reaction, I don't mean that it like reflects poorly on the film itself. I mean that people are gonna be like, well, that wasn't a Mr. Rogers biopic, and there might be some disappointment there. Do you think people are gonna be less interested in seeing Matthew Reese reconcile with his mean father? Uh, than a American hero playing another American hero? Yeah. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Well, that's all we've got for this episode of Film Club. Please be sure to check out the podcast version of Film Club and rate, review, and subscribe. However, you are joining us every week to talk about the latest films. And we also have another podcast called Dial M for Maple. It's all about Riverdale. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Thank you.